0: Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order and talk about them. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Michael, there's a meteor over there. Golly, Cameron, what kind of meteor is it? I'm licking it. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever's expedient for the plot, Cameron. It's a lollipop. A <laughs> cosmic lollipop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, today we're talking about cosmic lollipops. Mm-hmm.
1: That uh, Here, let's do a bit real quick. Okay, you ready? A bit's always good when you call it out first. Yes, oh yes, I love it when that happens. Uh, give me the three-sentence summary of Stephen King's Cosmic Lollipop, written in (laughs)
0: 1982. So, uh... One day, a man finds a very strange lollipop from an unknown location, and when he takes a taste of it, it turns out that he can write a whole bunch of things at one time. However... uh. As he continues licking this lollipop and writing page after page of nonsense, uh, he realizes that some of those things come true.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> That's pretty good. That is pretty similar uh, <laughs> to a Stephen King work from the early 80s. Now, when uh, this is important, I think, for uh, talking about Creepshow,
0: uh, when do the cocaine years begin and end? Uh, the, the year that King has given is 78, I believe, because that's I think in what I read, it was an interview. And at this point, it was like almost a year ago, probably. Uh, but mm. I'm pretty sure he kind of like tied it up with like his first visits out to kind of the West Coast to Hollywood. Um, I think mm. that's where I think he said, like quite explicitly, like the first place he ever encountered cocaine was at like a, a party in some Hollywood producer's house or something. Mm. Um and so, yeah, that's kind of when that starts. And it's going throughout the mid 80s, mm-hmm. right, is the idea. The reason
1: I ask that is that uh, Stephen King, I mean, he's he is accessing the Cosmic Lollipop, mm-hmm. as it were, because he at this point is extremely prolific. Um, this is what
0: the th- how many things does he produce in 1982? It's a lot, right? Yeah, this is. There are four things that Stephen King produces in 1982 and or like things that we'll cover for this show. We've only covered two of them at this point. This is our third one. So The Running Man, The Gunslinger, Creepshow, and then our next book, which I'm not going to mention until the end of the episode to keep it mysterious, even though you could look this up if you wanted to. But forget I said that Um, the next book was also 1982. So, like, really, yeah. the, the guy had four big projects in 1982. Is is the other way of looking at this?
1: Mm-hmm. And I and I will say more about this in the bonus episode. I don't want to say too much of it here because it really feels more appropriate to talking about the film. Because our bonus episode, of course, you go to Patreon.com/slash Range Touch, or if you go down to the description below this episode and click a little link, uh, our bonus episode is going to be on the film version of Creep Show uh, that George Romero directed. But uh, I know for a fact that while Stephen King was, uh, Stephen King was around the film for production in Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh while it was happening, and he was in a apartment trying to finish um, different seasons. Oh, oh no. Oh Ah! no. (laughs) I, I melted, of course. I can't
0: believe you did that. I know.
1: Uh, But he was trying to finish uh, this kind of next project that we're going to be talking about. So he was actively uh, in, I guess, 81, being on a film set every day and then also writing four novellas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And trying to finish Christine as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've got a little bit more information about that that I'll talk about in the bonus episode. So he's juggling a thousand things at one time here and... um, uh, and also
0: doing heavy drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you've already mentioned that the bonus episode is about the movie Creep Show, which is the creep show that everybody knows. Uh, what the hell then are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the tie in comic book or graphic novel, if you insist, uh, adaptation of the film. Uh, Which is a very strange object, uh, a little peculiar for our standards, and I will say one that nearly we didn't cover. The reason for this is because I based our reading list off of, as I think I've mentioned before, uh, Richard Chismar's list at StephenKingRevisited.com for kind of their ongoing project uh, where they're having people uh, read through these books and write kind of longer essays. Uh, there's usually a critic who's writing like a sort of scholarly or sort of, a, you know, a critical essay about the book. Uh, and then there's like a historical essay written by Bev Vincent. Um, Creepshow is not included in that listing. Uh, and when I was sort of looking into why it is because uh, Chismar does not consider creep show, the book a, uh, you know, quote unquote, real Stephen King book. Anyone's guess as to why that's all that was said. Um, and d- do you want to take like a guess, Cameron? Do you w- do we want to speculate? Why is this not a Stephen King book?
1: Well, I think I know the answer. So I don't want to <laughs> speculate too much. Um, but uh, because he, I, I, I will say probably because Stephen King is not a comic book
0: illustrator. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because this is a comic book. <laughs> that's that's really it. Yeah, it's a comic book. Uh, it's interesting. So I was looking into like I, I, well, to back up a little bit, why did I bother going back and putting Creepshow uh, into our rotation? The answer is, one, I knew this book existed, and so I wanted to look into, you know, who is the writer. And if you look it up in the Library of Congress, which I did, uh, Stephen King is credited as the writer. However, Mm -hmm. in doing additional research, we found out that really the the production process of this thing – was different from that uh but also uh, i felt like if we did skip over this in a weird way we were skipping over something that i think is uh perennially or sort of quintessentially kingy i think it's a thing that a lot of people know about stephen king or rather i should say i think creep show is a thing that people associate with stephen king Creepshow is a is a cultural object with kind of its fan base with kind of its own like there are people who are specifically creep show fans I would say I feel like I've encountered these people online there are people who have fond memories of the film and I think it the film itself is is kind of fondly regarded within uh like the horror movie community so I wanted to us to have a chance to actually talk about that because otherwise uh, we would just have to slot in creep show on some sort of unrelated bonus episode. And I felt like maybe doing a comparison between this comic book adaptation and the film itself uh, could be interesting for us. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see if that pans out. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so it's a, you know, a comic book, uh, as as we've said, uh, and uh, kind of, uh, not kind of, it, it adapted by and credited as art. Well, actually, th- it's really interesting. Yes. I guess. I, I, I want to, I was going to say something maybe was uh, uncritical, but maybe we should think about this. So the cover of Creepshow, and what I have is the uh gallery 13 comics reprint through simon and schuster that happened fairly recently i think Mm -hmm. Um, same during the 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 run-up for this episode we actually put some tweets out trying to figure out if this was exactly like a reproduction of the one published in in the 80s because the dimensions look a little bit weird the art looks a little bit stretched um you know things look a little bit odd, and uh, we both thought that. and uh, thanks to some some great people on Twitter, some just King things fans who like showed us some comparative pictures. I even had uh, someone sent me like the measurements of the original version from a library mm-hmm. <laughs> so I could compare them. um so uh, yes, it is as far as I can tell, like straight up reproduction. but you know, the cover of it says Stephen King's creep show, a George Romero film art by bernie wrightson cover art by jack cayman and the cover art here is the original um it is well it is a cropped version of the original poster that was i believe not actually used as the poster for the film the poster for the film that warner brothers ended up distributing is the one that, that you might see on a dvd cover that is like a uh it's like a skeleton uh, mm-hmm. giving you a movie ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this this art that you see on the cover of the Creepshow comic book, I believe, based on the commentaries that I've listened to and things like that, um, I believe this is the was the original poster that was kind of put up by the production company um, before
0: Warner Brothers picked it up for distribution. So they kind of got double use out of this thing. Yeah, and then in the lower left corner, so you, you've already pointed out the thing that is confusing is that this is a book. You're holding a book in your hands right now. So am I. And it says Stephen King's Creep Show, a George A. Romero film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the lower left corner, it says now a very scary movie. Screenplay by Stephen King. Uh, and then it uh, produced by Richard P. Rubinstein and directed yeah. by George A. Romero. Yeah, Richard Rubinstein gets to be above George Romero. Yeah. Uh and then inside, you you flip it open, Stephen King's Creep Show, a George A. Romero film. Art by Bernie Wrightson with Michelle Wrightson. Cover art by Jack Kamen. So it is still not particularly clear who who would have like written this book in the sense that, uh, you know, comics need writers. Someone needs to write out the dialogue and, and you know, hash these things out. Uh, who the hell did that? Because, as I said, the the thing uh, is accredited to Stephen King in the Library of Congress, but nowhere on this book does it say that Stephen King wrote it. It only says he wrote the screenplay. Well, luckily, uh, if you search just Bernie Wrightson Creepshow interview, like, your first Google result is going to be an interview with Wrightson uh, for the website, uh, the Comics Journal, uh, and Bernie writes. in in, in case you're, uh, you know, not a person who is into comics uh, or, or anything like that, uh, kind of a name, like a big name in uh, comics generally, and I would say in horror comics or kind of, uh, you know, sort of genre specifically, uh, he co-created Swamp Thing. For example, that's maybe like one of his big lasting impressions. Uh, but he goes on to collaborate with Stephen King in a couple of other uh, capacities. So, Cycle of the Werewolf, which is a novella we'll be reading in a few months, uh, it's a it's a thing that comes out with illustrations. Writes and illustrates that. He also does the illustrations for the stand complete and uncut when that comes out, and he also illustrates. Uh, The fifth Dark Tower book. Hmm. This is a good working relationship with Stephen King. uh, But this is, I guess, where it all starts. And how it all starts is with, uh, as Wrightson explains in this interview, him adapting Stephen King's screenplay into a comic book. Well, I think I'm not 100%
1: certain on this because you're the one who did the research on it. But I think you were also telling me that uh, Michelle Wrightson... Uh, Mm -hmm. who used to be Michelle, or not used to be, I guess. This is all taking place 40 years ago. Uh, But before she married Bernie Wrightson was Michelle Robinson, who people might know from women's comics, the kind of 1970s underground uh, feminist comics work. Um, Apparently, she married Bernie Wrightson. I had no idea about that. And she was involved also in the adaptation in some way. But I think in this interview, because I, I think you shared some excerpts with me a few weeks ago, Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in that interview was where he talks about how she helped do some of that work here. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so this is a, you know, this should be, you know, it, it, obviously not should in a legal sense because the, the should in a legal sense is very visible on the cover in the, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven names <laughs> that are on the cover of a book, which is pretty wild. Um, uh, so that's, you know, kind of everyone's legal, uh, decision-making that happened here, right? But the, uh, in, in a real sense, I think of who is the author of the book that we hold in front of us, it is Bernie Wrightson almost entirely in the sense that it is a Wrightson, a wholly, wholly a Wrightson adaptation of a pre-existing Stephen King, um, screenplay because this movie comes out in the spring slash early summer of 1982 and this comic doesn't come out until like july huh um so, well it's actually a little bit wiggly here right so this so creep show the film uh debuted at can so the cut is finished may 16th 82 it doesn't come out in in theaters you can Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because they got to sell it. I mean, so, you know, this is a different filmmaking culture, right, Uh than what we live in now. I'm glad that you kind of reacted to that, right? Because um, this is, like, before the existence of things like Sundance. Uh, It's before a much more robust... uh, It's in a weird spot in between a robust independent market in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s. And then uh, a, a more robust one that shows up in the 90s. It's in this kind of, like, weird... Um, solidification land that's happening where there are a bunch of independents, but they are all kind of becoming their own expanded studio system, essentially. And so, yeah, they, it, it debuts It can. You got to remember, too, that Romero is, he's riding high off of Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. this is going to be the next big thing. And so, and that's, in fact, I'll talk about it in the bonus episode, but that's kind of how it was sold to the financiers of the film but anyway so debuts it can and the idea there's they're looking for distribution and so warner brothers eventually picks it up and they become the distributors which is way way bigger than what the independent uh studio Uh, i think laurel pictures is the is romero's company way big and uh rubenstein Way, way bigger than what they could do. So they're looking for distribution. But the film of Creep, or uh, the the comic of Creep Show, but it comes out in the middle state, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it does not come out at the beginning of the year. It comes out in the middle of the year, in between, kind of. So before domestic release, but after the movie is complete. I see. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense, because some of the people in this comic book look like the people who are in the movie. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Uh, So in uh, July, July 1982. So movie is complete. Full cut is done. It has not found distribution yet in the U.S. And in that intervening period
0: is when the comic comes out. July 82. Okay, Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Wait, when does the movie then get released? November, November November of 82. Okay, all right. That makes a lot of sense because, uh, I mean, this this book is essentially it's a tie in. (laughs) Um <laughs> is, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. how to describe it. Like this is kind of like a, a tie-in to promote the film, essentially. Uh, but that's not to say that I think it's without merit, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a bit. Uh here's a here's Wrightson talking about uh the process of creating it though. Um you mentioned that uh his wife, uh who's you know credited in here, um uh Michelle Wrightson, uh she did the coloring and the lettering. Uh that's what he says. And then the interviewer asks, did King write the comics adaptation or did you adapt it yourself? And writes in replies, no. He offered to, and I told him I would prefer just to take the screenplay, which is like this thick, indicates five inches, this massive tome of a screenplay, something like three to four thousand scenes, and I just took that and readapted it myself to comics. I did a lot of editing and deleting because, Christ, the way he writes, I just didn't want to lose a word of it, but it was just too much to put into 11 pages a lot of times because the dialogue is just so rich. And the interviewer asks, have you read some of his other books? Are you familiar with his work generally? And Wrightson says, oh, I've read everything he's ever written. Uh, The interviewer says, really? Wrightson says, yeah, I'm a big fan of his. And that helped, too. I've never felt this good about a project this big all the way through. It's always been the case where I was real excited to begin with. And then halfway through, it starts to run out. And towards the last quarter, I could give a shit. And it really falls down. Um, and then he goes on to talk about like various projects where that actually happened uh, to him. And specifically, right, one of the things he says is like, that's what the process of of having created Swamp Thing felt like, is that he sort of ran out of steam with it. Um, mm-hmm. But he seems to have a high opinion of this project. Uh, I I think it's a great adaptation, although
1: it's really interesting to hear him say that because this does not feel as much like an adaptation of a screenplay as it does a direct adaptation of the film. And obviously he would have started working on this before, because if it comes out in July, right, everything is locked Mm -hmm. pretty far in. So I would assume that Wrightson, you know, is not working from being able to see the, um, you know, the full cut of the film, but probably is able to look at some of the segments as they're being done or is looking at dailies or something like that. Because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of like setting and background that is shared. Like the, even the, uh, like the shape and the font on the um on the tombstone in father's day is mm-hmm. resonant with the film so so you know i don't know what i'd be very curious to know like what exactly wrightson got to see from the movie but obviously i think it's clear that he saw some of it uh which is all to say um i uh, I, I think it's a, a well well adapted, well thought out thing, but it just does not feel like something that he independently cut, especially because I know on the film, since Stephen King was there, they were rewriting things on the day mm-hmm. and those things show up in this comic book. So, uh, we'll talk about that more in the bonus ode, uh, a lot of, a lot of teasers for the bonus ode this time, but because this is so wrapped up in a movie you know, I got a lot more information about the movie. Mm mm-hmm. Is it time for a... I feel, like, I feel like that's all we can say about the setup. Um, it, this is, I think,
0: probably got some of the most interesting setup that we have encountered so far. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how segments are really going to fly for this, but do you think I should attempt a five-sentence summary? Why don't you give me a one-sentence summary for all
1: of the segments of the comic <laughs> book? Because, for example, if you've seen the film, this does not have the frame narrative in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that actually does change some of the what's going on here. It, but there's five stories. Yeah,
0: it certainly does. And you 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 zeroed in on exactly what I was going to do. <laughs> Damn. So here's the five sentence summary of Creepshow. <clears throat> One zombie kills a bunch of people. A man has a lawn care accident and then kills himself. Mm hmm. Uh. A bunch of people get killed by a weird fuzzy thing in a box. Mm hmm. Two zombies from the ocean kill one guy. <laughs> a bunch of cockroaches kill one guy. That's creep show.
1: That's it. That's creep show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, you know it's a, it's a really great use of the uh, uh, GD per C uh, method of analysis of comic books, which is of course guy death per comic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we often that's what that's what people don't know is the uh, comics code. That was a big part of what they were doing. Yes. They were looking at the GDPC, <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on
0: with it. So yeah, this is an anthology story. And just like the film, it's, it's an anthology. Uh, and this is the whole thing is a callback or an homage to a specific genre of comics from uh, the forties and fifties kind of horror comics. Uh, and the, the, the big three titles that are famous and associated with this are a uh, haunt of Haunt of Fear, uh, Vault of Terror, and then, of course, I think probably the most famous one into the present, uh, Tales from the Crypt. Uh, (laughs) Yes, precisely. That's my crypt keeper. So one of the reasons these uh, stories are so easy to summarize in terms of like who kills who is that generally speaking, that's what these stories are about. They're all uh, exceedingly formulaic. And I don't even mean that as a dig. I mean that as like, you know, I think this is what is constitutive of this particular genre of little comic and the film slash this comic adaptation of the film uh, follows that logic. Uh, basically to the letter, Uh, not in ways that I think can be um, that not in ways that I think cannot be maybe complicated, because I think uh, one of the things that Stephen King talks about, he talked about this in *Dance macabre. He talks about it in kind of interviews that he gives about creep show specifically is he talks about how uh, these stories, this type of comic is moralist like deeply and and sort of foundationally moralist in the sense that as sort of gruesome and horrifying as the things that happen in these stories are, Ah, uh, there is a kind of moral logic at work to the horror, where people are being punished for bad things that they've done, or for you know certain character flaws that they have, or, or whatever. Uh, and this is a thing that these stories try to port forward into this you know uh, postmodernist 1980s homage to this older cultural format. And at the same time, um, I don't think it actually successfully like articulates that moral logic, uh, or rather I should say um, in a uh, predictable Stephen King fashion, you can ask some questions about the moral logic of these stories that uh, are maybe not, not necessarily troubling to Steve's claim about these being moralistic stories, um, but it really, I mean, the other way to say it, I guess, is that when you say that these stories are are moralistic, then you can turn around and be like, "Okay, well, here's the apparent moral. What do we think of that y- yeah,
1: uh none of well, no, I think actually none of these well, i no, I'm sorry, the last one uh the one about the cockroaches mm-hmm. uh, some they they creep up on you, sometimes they creep up on you, mm-hmm. I'm getting it confused with sometimes they come back yeah <laughs> uh, they're they're creeping up on you, very active title. They're creeping up on you. Um, other than it, none of them have an ending. Right. They they have like a shocking event that occurs. But well, maybe maybe Geordie Verrill also has an ending. But beyond that, they just they kind of end in a shocking thing. And it's very much a. with. This is what I think we've learned with Steve. Who knows? Right. <laughs> on one hand, this can be clever commentary on the format. Right, Like, how do you really sell the horror to a 1980s audience in a way that does not kind of close itself up in a neat and moralistic fashion like it would have in the 1950s? Okay. On the other hand, Steve could have just got bored and not finished them and knew that the shock would carry through. And so it doesn't work. And so, you know, that, that works just fine. And he's he's not wrong because... After this, after Creepshow, right? After this kind of, I don't know, revival of 1950s horror kind of vibes. Mm -hmm. You know, we get Tales from the Dark Side, which comes after from the same production company that that makes this film. We get the revival of Tales from the Crypt as Mm -hmm. a TV show with the Crypt Keeper in it. We get uh, The Outer Limits. And I think there's another Twilight Zone
0: reboot that happens in the 80s, right? Or maybe mm-hmm. the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I mean, the 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 Twilight Zone film comes out in like 85 or something like that, I think. So, yeah, not too far after this. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's right after this. Yeah, really anthology of their youth vibes from the boomer set, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh. We'll we'll talk about it when we get to that episode, but uh, anthology films still do not work for me, <laughs> but uh, Cat's Eye included. But uh, the but yeah, there's something going on here with like this being brought forward, and I will say that I've watched a lot of the Tales from the Crypt 1990s, you know, live action show, and it's pretty similar in its vibes of like doesn't really it ends with a shock more than it ends with a moralistic kind of more, you know, any kind of moral directly. Um, uh, the Outer Limits, that reboot, very similar in that way too. So I, I think maybe in some ways, like Stephen King, the creep show, um method here of like bringing the form and the genre without really closing the loop, uh, I think that might be something that, that resonates throughout the rest of these adaptations. I think that maybe the horror of the 1980s because we're post-slasher, right? Where mm-hmm. there's like broad morals in the, you know, the final girl logic, and like if you have sex, you die, like all that stuff that that slasher fans love to talk about as this kind of broad strokes moral construction of a universe it's nothing like someone standing there at the end of the comic book you know the the narrator character narrative character whoever that is you know at the end of a crime comic for example and being like and so because this person died we know that crime does not pay Mm -hmm. like that's the type of moralism that's happening in the 1950s in particular um and in the crime comics or in in the horror comics of the time or like you know, it, they are not vaguely moral. They are directly moral. Um, and, and, you know, even think about if you've seen The Twilight Zone, and this is what Stephen King's reacting to in Dance Macabre. If you've seen those classic episodes, dude shows up at the end of that to be like, and that's why you don't be mean to children. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's very direct. It turns out um, the monster was man. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. To serve man. Learn to read, <laughs> uh, you know, that kind of thing. And that, that is absent here. There is a wonderful kind of crypt keepery kind of dude here. I don't know what his name is. Do you know? I mean, I think he's just called the creep. The creep. Yeah, he's called uh, in the film. His name is Raul. <laughs>
0: <laughs> OK, that's what Tom Savini says. He says, "Ah, yes, Raul. <laughs> we invented him. <laughs> and then um, he gets he shows up in New Vegas later, I
1: guess. Yeah, that's that's the connection. Yeah, uh, but uh, but anyway, but he shows up here, right? But he shows up here not to say not to do that kind of thing. So, you know, the first comic here, Father's Day, it's exactly like you said. It's these like rich people uh, or zombie kills some people. Mm-hmm. Rich people are hanging out in a the house. Uh, they tell a story about their aunt or their great aunt or whatever, who murdered her father because he murdered Her Mm husband-to-be, they're all partying and chilling out. She gets murdered by, he rises from the dead, kills her, the woman who murdered him, and then goes through the house and uh, kills them all one by one while uh, kind of referring back to his Father's Day cake that he never got. Mm -hmm. He got murdered instead.
0: I don't know what the hell a Father's Day cake is. Is that a thing? N- not to my knowledge. Which is one of the things that jumps out to me about this. But I guess I don't know. They're rich people. They're not like us. They have Father's Day cakes. That could be the case. But so uh,
1: it, at the end of it, shocker, the zombie shows up and he's got uh, a woman's head on a platter that's got like frosting on it and whatnot. Some some candles and that's his cake. Boo boo. That's his cake. Ah. And uh, But then we get the creep who shows up at the very end in a little box, very much 1950s. I mean, this is Bernie Wrightson leaning on his experience in this field and his knowledge of the field. And he says, now that's what I call a twist ending, eh, kiddies? Because the zombie twisted her head off. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nate did all the twisting and Sylvia ended. Poor old girl just, went, just lost her head and went all to pieces. But the worst part came when old Nate blew out Cass and Richard's candles. Hee, 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 poof. But why hang around here when my next terror tale awaits? Normally, there would be a moral here. It mm-hmm. would be like, don't be rich. Mm-hmm. Or don't murder someone. <laughs> you get what's coming to you. But this is just a... he literally just summarizes what you read over the best five pages.
0: Mm-hmm. And makes like little
1: puns. Yeah. So uh, it's
0: a different vibe. It's
1: Stephen King doing an impression almost of the genre that existed, but that had a different kind of set of resonances and maybe goals in mind. And a lot of that has to do with pre-code and code negotiations and things like that. But, um, Stephen King is not, not quite on the mark. I don't think.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing I guess that's interesting here or like the thing that's you've laid this out nicely. So here's how to work through this from like the 1950s perspective. If this were an actual, like, ec horror comic of the time period uh the the clear like there's a chain of murders that happens in this story and the way that the sort of whole thing is set up is like okay these are rich people who got their money from this woman having killed their patriarch right like that is kind of the if we're going to think in sort of the moral logic of the 1950s or whatever that's kind of their original sin And him rising from the grave and killing them all, that's, you know, divine justice or supernatural vengeance coming back to kind of correct the original wrong, which was his murder. The complicating factor then is the fact that he was a huge asshole and murdered that woman's like fiance. So she ends up getting punished for, you know, trying to fight back. And I'm not saying that' it's like you know, murder's just fine, but like the, you know if we're trying to sort of like set up the moral calculus that is implicit in this story, uh, her trying to like fight back against the guy who killed her fiance is what makes her marked for death in kind of this moral set or in in this, in this moral universe, which is not in real, Mm -hmm. in fact, really a moral universe. It is very like 1980s retakes the 1950s in that way, uh, because it just kind of wrenches out the, the, the Pat sort of, uh, and I'm not saying that every single horror comic from the, the 40s and 50s was like this, because obviously there was a ton of them. Uh, but just I, I have a couple of anthologies here on my bookshelf and I pulled them out and I was flipping through them before we started recording because I wanted to get a sense for them. And like the first one that I read is about a man who is henpecked by his wife. Tell me if this sounds familiar, Cameron. Um mm, OK. He's henpecked by his wife, and so he comes up with an elaborate plan to murder her. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. 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 But then what happens is that when he tries to execute that plan, uh, it seems to go wrong. She seems to come back from the dead, and then he dies instead. Hmm. And it turns out like he he misunderstood kind of the situation. And there's just like there's a big ironic twist where the person who wanted to, uh, you know, do the murder ends up being the one who dies. Right. That's kind of that uh, more pat moral logic of like, don't do murders, kids. Uh, and we get a version of this story later on in, in Creepshow uh, about like the henpecked husband trying to take out the wife. But it doesn't end this way. Uh, It it doesn't end with uh, sort of the the sense of like moral justification of what has gone before. Uh, And I think that's very strange and weird. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: You're referring, of course, to the crate. Mm
0: hmm. Um, I think,
1: you know, well, maybe we should go in order. Should we go in order? Should we talk?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm just going to mark that. We're going to reach just to say, like, we'll return to this henpecked mm-hmm. husband issue uh, with the crate, because I think there's more to talk about there Um, specifically, you know. Uh, but yeah, between the crate and this, we have the lonesome death of Geordie Verrill, which might be the most famous segment from Creepshow.
1: You know, I think you have said that before, and I think other people have said that. I think people on the Discord have said that. And I I had never seen this before we did this. <laughs> <laughs> like I've ne- I think I guess I've seen screen caps of Stephen King mm-hmm. looking like Geordie Verrill, Georgie jo- Verrill and up from the movie, which we'll talk about in the bonus episode. But uh I had no idea about the content
0: in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. So Geordie Verrill is one of the two stories here in Creepshow that are actually adapted from pre-existing short stories. The other three are originals that King wrote for this screenplay. Um, Weeds, I think, was maybe originally published in Gallery or something like that, as was maybe The Crate. One was uh, Cavalier and one was Gallery. Okay, I don't know which is which. Okay, so there we have it. These are we've talked about this. If you go back to the Night Shift episode, these are kind of the men's magazines where King is publishing a lot of his early short fiction. And uh the lonesome death of Geordie Verrill uh quite feels very much like it feels of a piece with something like The Mangler. Uh where it's just like here is a, a bizarre nightmare situation that someone falls into and there's no hope of escape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah, Geordie uh Jordy Verrill is
1: one of uh, Stephen King's uh bumpkin hicks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, he finds a meteor, and that meteor um, uh, starts causing weeds to grow everywhere, and it turns him into the swamp thing, essentially, and he kills himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and e- everything in the middle is just like Jordy Vero making bad
0: decisions. <laughs> well, golly! I don't like, I, I want to sell this meteor. Oh no, it seems like the meteor's making me, or like the meteor makes me want to get in water, which helps the grass grow, but it really itches, so I'm going to get in the bathtub anyway. Yep, yeah, there's like not a lot
1: to it. I, I will say it's interesting. It's hard to talk about some of this stuff without talking about the movie, but you know, I really love, there's some little touches here that are in the film. And I'm I'm assuming they're in the script too. So for example, Jordi Vero has a fantasy here, you know, has some thoughts about going and selling the meteor to at the university mm-hmm. and he goes to to the department of meteors. That's so funny. I love that. <laughs> it's a great it's a great gag. But like this is a weird thing where the actor who plays that character, the professor he sells it to, his name's Bingo something. Yeah. And I only remember that because it comes up a lot in the commentary. Same as bingo something. That is the dude who's in the comic book here. This is like a one-to-one illustration of that human being, mm-hmm. of that actor. But this is not
0: Stephen King as Geordie e. Verrill. No, this is like this is like a Bernie Wrightsonified Stephen King. Like, like if you yeah. if you ran Stephen King through kind of a machine that ch- turns you into a kind of generic Bernie Wrightson character. And I don't mean that like Bernie Wrightson is a generic illustrator, but like the man has a recognizable style. And if I just saw a Mm -hmm. sketch of a dude, I could be like, oh yeah, that's got some like Bernie Wrightson vibes to it. And this, this is what this sort of looks like.
1: Yeah. He gives him Stephen King's haircut. Mm -hmm. Like it is Stephen King's haircut from the time, which is everyone's haircut. We're going to talk about haircuts in the bonus episode i have <laughs> to i have to it's killing me uh but yeah i mean i uh, i do you think i like the ending of this comic quite a bit um and it's an ending that's not preserved in the film unfortunately um but uh, uh i don't know is anything about this stick out to you uh what do you mean what do you mean it's not uh preserved well, so the ending of the comic is, uh, you know, we get this, like, really cool Wrightson uh, uh, visual effect, right? Oh, so mm-hmm. we get we get these panels from across uh, the page. Uh, you know, it's Geordie Verrill, and he's loading a shotgun, and he's trying to kill himself. But he uh, is doing this really fascinating thing where it's, like, a thin panel and a slightly thicker panel and a slightly thicker panel and a slightly thicker panel. And then we get the thickest panel of these vertical panes that is like the shotgun blast. And and that kind of extends through it really great kind of comics work, I think. Um, but what's interesting about the very end is that, that we get this kind of slow zoom of like Geordie um, Verrill, swamp thingified sliding slowly down the wall. And he's kind of got these dead eyes, but then the, cre- the the creep shows up at the very end and uh you know we get the ending of the comic which is that uh-oh um we zoom out and we can see a sign that says like Castle Rock 5 miles, Portland 30 something miles, Boston 188 miles. And we know that the 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 grass is going to extend everywhere and there's going to be rain tonight. So it's you know very uh like oh oh no! But the creep shows up and the creep says, "Hear that kitties? Rain tonight." Hee hee. I guess that old Veril luck is in again. You can decide for yourself if Jordy finally had a bit of the good luck when he managed to pull that trigger. But don't think too long, kiddies. Our next yarn awaits. The, the implication at the end there is that Jordy Veril is so plantified that he can't even kill himself. Ah, uh, I see. I and that's see. cool. Mm-hmm. That's a cool ending to me. That's like where the business is mm-hmm. uh, for for this kind of story. Like, oh, no, Geordie Verrill's really beefed it. Uh, he's a plant consciousness now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely want to play a tabletop role playing game where I play Geordie Verrill <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like post comic, <laughs> um, you know, in another plane. I think that would be super cool. But uh, but anyway, I I, I like that Indian. I think that ending that is preserved here in the comic, and that might be um, that might be Wrightson because this creep character is not in the film in any kind of way. So I would assume that these bumpers are for the most part
0: a Wrightson invention. Yeah, I it, I was wondering about this too because you can see a little bit of the bumpers in the film. Uh, and they seem to be word for word, but you also don't see all of the bumpers. So it might be that like King wrote some of them and then Wrightson and went in and filled in the others. But I, mm-hmm. I like them. I actually think it is a, a, a big asset for the comic book itself that it has these.
1: Yeah, me too. It's I think uh, the creep being a weirdo and showing you weird, scary stuff is way better conceptually than uh, what, you know, the frame narrative in the film. Mm-hmm um i'm not particularly into that of like the of of the person reading the comic book although
0: we'll talk about that but uh the crate yeah yeah the crate i've already mentioned uh it's it this is the henpecked husband story uh this is the story about like it's just this is just a misogynist story yeah this it sucks it's it's like oh man this man has a wife who's mean uh better find some complicated way to murder her uh, and as I said, in the you know nineteen fifties, nineteen forties, the the murderer is the one who is punished. Uh, you do not like you you can do murder in these stories. In fact, one of the stories that King talks about, I think, from a Tales from the Crypt comic, is about a whole baseball team that murders a player from the opposing team because he like. <laughs> do, do you remember this? <laughs> I think I remember I was talking about it more than I remember King talking about it. But that is inherently funny. I'm yeah, sorry, <laughs> it is. It's very funny. <laughs> um, and, and if it's not clear, like this is part of this genre, too, is that there's a kind of morbid humor to the whole thing. And uh, Creepshow as a comic is playing this up a lot. Um, but uh, oh, because
1: he's a cheater or something, he's like the worst baseball player. And they like rise up to
0: kill him. Yeah. Is that well, the he, plot? He okay. he does something that results in the death of one of their players. I'm pretty sure. Mm hmm. Um, And so they kill him and then they like dismember him and use his various body parts for uh, the bases on their field during a night baseball game. Which is this, it's like, it's a perfect image to me. Um, And I'm actually, you know, uh, we we talk, we we give Steve a lot of guff, but I love that he preserved this for us because I do think that that is like a a quintessentially like horror comics tales from the crypt idea of like, we need to punish this, this bad baseball player. So me and the other boys on the team are going to kill him and then use him for bases during our evil night baseball game. Uh, but that's, you know, again, that's sort of moral logic that he did something bad uh, that resulted in someone's death. And so now it is OK for us to kill him.
1: Yeah. And and crucially, I mean, just to just to close that thought, crucially, what's so good about that? In case you're listening to us to say that and you can't you, you're thinking, what would be good about that? For me, what's good about that? Maybe I think similar for you, Michael, is that it is equally truly horrifying. Like that's an awful thing and stupid. Yes, (laughs) yes, it's it's so stupid. (laughs) Uh, And and that's not ironic appreciation or anything like that. But it's that someone sat down and they were like, "All right, so I got to crank a bunch of these things out. All right, what do we got here? All right, baseball team murder. What's really weird about? Okay." What if they use his brains as the ball? Nope. Okay. What about they use his eyeballs as the ball? Too small. Mm, Body parts for bases. You've got it. All right, let's go. (laughs) Like It's such a, you can feel the production method on the surface of like how quickly they had to come up with these ideas. So Mm -hmm. I, uh, I just think that's delightful, but, But uh, yeah, sorry, you're talking about who gets punished in this comic.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, who gets punished? It's it's the main character's wife. We're not going to talk about names, by the way, because names aren't important uh, in these stories at all. Generally speaking, Uh, I already said that these are formulaic and that's true. It's about these are stories where you go into them and it is about understanding the kind of morals, the implicit moral situation of like someone here is a bad person by the logic of the story, and they are going to get offed and the pleasure is waiting to see sort of the escalation or, uh, well, pleasure, I say, you know, quote unquote, um, because I think a lot of these just aren't up to kind of the imagination of the original comics. I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, like that, this has nothing close to that baseball ending, right? The, 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 sublimity of, uh, something that is both grotesque and horrifying and just like also stupid that feels like it gets presented. Like it, it's presented as a punchline, right? <laughs> of yes, yes. In, in its way, uh, nothing ever quite lands in that fashion here. Uh, but we have a professor who has a wife who, uh, is constantly embarrassing him at faculty parties, uh, because she's a lush. She drinks too much mm-hmm. and she talks a lot and she tends to insult people, uh, especially him. She's always, you know, casting mm-hmm. aspersions on his manhood or whatever. Uh, and then sort of in parallel to this, the professor's friend happens to discover a box under some stairs. This is also sort of the most complicated story in case it's not clear.
1: It's extremely complicated. Also, sorry, one additional thing. She's also sleeping around. Oh, Yes. Is the implication in the comic, which doesn't really make its way into the film uh, as clearly, but but that's that I think pretty clear in the comic too. So yeah. there, there's also this kind of like emasculation, additional emasculation thing going on there too. But yeah, he's got a friend who discovers a crate.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, we're going to talk about the that weird the weirdness of the movie is that it kind of softens her edge a lot. The, and we'll talk about it in the bonus episode. But like the movie does not do itself favors in adapting the story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The 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 janitor at the school discovers this old crate from like an Antarctic expedition underneath some stairs. Uh, and he calls the professor's friend over and they open the crate. And lo and behold, there's some sort of monster in there and what this monster is and what it wants and what it what it's up to we don't really get a whole lot of information on this um and we don't really need to because the monster exists basically just to kill people it's it's like it's the horrifying thing at the center of all of these events and it kills a couple of people and then the professor runs to the main character his friend and is like oh my god i found this thing that kills people and the protagonist is like hmm a thing that kills people you say i wonder if i could introduce my wife to it and then he does and then he uh you know chains up the box and throws it into the uh like a quarry so the thing can never escape and then tells his friend about it uh but not you know it the last panel is the fact that you know the 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 lid on this crate is not particularly secure and the thing can still reach out this last page of art
1: is immaculate like of, of this thing, like in the crate getting out at the bottom of the ocean with these fish going by and everything. And the fact that you can see it,
0: uh, Wrightson has drawn the fish so that it looks like they're like glancing down at the crate and their mouths are open in kind of <laughs> shock. Like that's such a that's such a thing that these comics would do. Right. That that anthropomorphic or like pathetic fallacy thing uh, of, you know, it it, it it adds to like the cartoonish horror of it all.
1: Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's great. I, I would have like I would put up a poster of just this art of this thing coming out. Very, very cool. It's a full like splash page. So it's a whole page of art. Um, You get this good stuff. Yeah, I got a bunch of just random thoughts about this. This comic, Um, one of which is that both in the movie commentary. And I think I saw online when I was like kind of looking up some information about it. People refer to this creature as the Tasmanian devil. Yeah. Like, like often. And I maybe I just missed it in the movie because there's a lot of dialogue in the movie. But I I feel and I I was actually when I read the comic, I was kind of looking for it. And nowhere that I can see is anyone ever saying that this thing is called the
0: Tasmanian devil. Is that true or did I just miss it? Uh, so when the after the janitor gets eaten and the professor runs out into the hallway, he meets that grad student who also mm-hmm. eventually gets eaten. Uh, but the grad student, it, it's unclear kind of what's going on ex- exactly in the comic because everything is is compressed in the film. The the, the the implication I had is that the grad student thinks the professor is basically high and having a bad trip. Uh, mm-hmm. But what he says, and he says this in both the film and the comic uh And the comic, I think, is probably paraphrased from the film's dialogue, but it's uh,
1: they they think you've been
0: off on one hell of a toot and got to seeing Tasmanian Devils instead of Pink Elephants. I just totally
1: read over that. Yeah, I read the Pink Elephants part. (laughs) Uh, There are two like we we zoom into my mind, my big thought bubble, and it's just Tasmanian Devils being killed by Pink Elephants. Mm -hmm. Just obliterating. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Uh, okay, gotcha. Well, so like people treat that as gospel, it seems. Yeah. And it's weird because I mean, well, I think part of it is just like this creature doesn't make any damn sense. It doesn't make sense in the movie and it doesn't really it actually makes more sense in the comic to me uh, in that in the comic it's described. It has like a call, like a sound that it makes and they describe Mm -hmm. it as like sounding like a high, like piercing wind. Which makes me think like, oh, okay, like, and because it's a, like an Antarctic expedition, it's like, my, my thought immediately is like, oh, all right, this is supposed to be like, you know, a Yeti or an abominable snowman. So that's mm-hmm. sort of what it feels like. It's kind of like trying to gesture at or pull in. uh, But really, that's like... It, this story is not interested in grounding this creature in any way. It's literally, we opened an old box and there was a monster in there. No time to think about like, how is this thing sat in a crate for 150 years and just not died or, or done something, tried to get out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, no, we're not going to think about that. It's just, we opened the box and now the monster is here and we got to do something about it.
1: Uh, my other major thought is that, uh, there's no page numbers, so I can't, um, I can't refer to him, but a couple pages toward the end it's when Wilma is being murdered mm-hmm. by the by the critter and uh, by Fluffy. It's referred to as Fluffy in the film, mm-hmm. by the way. Tom Savini named it Fluffy. Uh, let me give you a little bit of a tease for the uh, for the Patreon bonus episode. Tom Savini, due to operating Fluffy, cannot move one of the joints of one of his thumbs. Dang. That's that's all I'm gonna say. All right. Talk about the bonus though. But uh this is some real EC comics, like and like maybe even going into like the nineteen seventies kind of vibe, because she's getting bit on the face. It's brutal looking. Mm-hmm. Like her whole face is inside the sharp maw and uh dead in the middle of the of the, the panel in the middle of the page, her extremely hard nipples yeah. and huge boobs. And like, that's the that's the whole universe of this comic, like right there for you. Uh, You know, it's straight up some sex and death logic. And yeah, even the next panel is like very brutal. Her face is getting bitten off. Awful. Mm hmm. Uh, But yeah, this uh, this whole comic just is about um, hating women.
0: Yep. It's like, man, this this woman's like this woman being mean at faculty parties and being unfaithful is a good enough reason to feed her to a Yeti as anything. Just get divorced, dude. Yeah, like it's nineteen eighty-two. You don't have to like move this crate around. You don't have to clean up all yeah. this blood. Uh,
1: yeah, just get divorced. I mean, I totally, I, I get like the the logic of the, the the internal logic of the story, which is that this is a man who is he's he is you know weak-willed, henpecked, quote unquote, like we were talking about and beaten down by this woman who uh you know is domineering and everything and he just can't work up the will to to do that in his day-to-day life but once the supernatural is involved ha 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 that is the solution to his his troubles and so like i get the internal logic of the thing obviously uh there's a story reason why he can't uh you know just get divorced or whatever but uh the whole thing, this is the most Bachman, you know, and it's unfortunate we, that we have to use that word as like the adjective to describe, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, misogynistic, uh, misanthropic stories that Stephen King produces. But, you know, if the, the shoe fits in some ways. And this
0: is the most Bachman story, I think, here. Yeah. And I and to go back to what I already invoked, you know, it's it's sort of telling that even in the 40s comic... Like the the moral logic there, which, you know, forties and fifties, like, you know, the, the, we have this idea of, you know, the high patriarchal culture of the United States at the time. And that's not to say it doesn't exist, but even the moral logic there is like the, the man who, uh, thinks that the best way to deal with his wife that he doesn't like is to have her murdered and then it, like, rebounds on him and he ends up being the one dying. Like, that's that moral logic uh, of, like, sort of locking together or landing in a way that this story either... Does not under like either it does not understand that moral logic, uh, mm-hmm. like it genuinely thinks that, like, what Billy this or Wilma, uh, she has both names, uh, what this character has done is sort of you know, she's deserving of it. Either it thinks that, or it is like, no, that moral logic does not hold, and people are just going to you know, eat shit until this thing gets thrown into the quarry or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. so.
1: Yeah, it's just King not closing the loop, Mm -hmm. like not get either, you know, as we said, either not understanding the formula or purposely trying to kind of revise and mess with it, it, which in that case just creates this like deeply misogynistic story. (laughs) Right.
0: Uh, Ruins like the what? So, I mean, these comics also in uh, if you're not familiar with comics history. um These comics are considered a corrupting influence on the youth. Uh, There's a whole moral panic over them. There's a book that gets written called uh, The Seduction of the Innocent by a psychiatrist named uh, Frederick Wertham or uh, Wertham. I'm not sure how he pronounced it because I know he was like German born. Um, But anyway... Uh, he re- he writes this book where he's basically like, oh, man, kids are reading all of these comic books about like horrific murders and crimes and so on and so forth. And that's going to make kids want to do horrific murders and commit crimes. Just uh, a straight up like immediacy of effects argument that reading these stories makes kids more likely to do these things or to enact these things. And then one of the sort of defenses that gets put up is that actually, you know, you know here is this moral logic of, you know, crime doesn't pay. Uh, but it turns out to not be enough because uh, the the other sort of complicating element here is the the lurid detail in which murders will be shown.
1: Yeah. And so part of this probably has to do with, um, you know, the way that Stephen King is kind of. Uh, getting you know thinking about the way that these comics work, these horror comics work. I, you know there's there's Frederick Wertham um, and I, I guess the timeline here, I don't know what, what's the timeline here of when horror comics are being produced uh, up to when they stop being produced because I know there's a moment there. Mm-hmm. I think you know this better than I do. Uh,
0: so they start getting produced in you know the 40s up through the 50s. Uh, and then in what happens is in 1954 Wertham publishes the book The Seduction of the Innocent. Um, and actually sort of famously kind of aside from, uh, what he says about horror comics and all of their media effects that these are going to make kids want to do crimes and so on. This is the guy who first says that, like, look at this, look at this Batman and Robin situation, folks. What's going on here? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like, this is the guy who kind of founds that like, uh, gay panic reading of Batman and Robin, uh, so, he, this is these are sort of the allegations that he's making about these comic books. Uh, that's in 1954, and th- the people respond to this so strongly that it results in a congressional inquiry into the production of these comic books. And, uh, then, you know, there's, there's all of these hearings and the, and because of this, the comics code authority comes to be and the comics code authority is, you know, making all of these rules about what can and cannot be, uh, presented in comics. And you could of course make comics that broke these rules. But what would happen is that, uh, sellers wouldn't carry your comics if they did not have the comics code authority seal on them. So you basically didn't have any distribution. So comics have to follow kind of this moral logic. They can't uh, show certain things. In fact, one of the, one of the rules is that uh, I think like the words terror, fear and haunt or something cannot appear in the titles of a comic book. Like that's, Mm. that's a rule. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Uh, So obviously, uh, EC is making a a good bit of money, not only on these horror comics, but also on kind of like crime comics and war comics and kind of like uh, weird science fiction comics. Uh, This really hamstrings a lot of their production uh, to the point that this congressional hearing happens in 1954. And by the end of that year, EC is no longer publishing any of its horror comics like it cannot do it. And then EC ends up focusing on one of their other properties that meets the Comics Code Authority, uh, Mad Magazine. And they that's how they make their money until you know mad gets folded into a, a larger corporate entity later on. Uh, mm-hmm. but this is all to say uh the the weirdness here is that there was a kind of moral logic to these stories uh but then uh it wasn't enough pre- precisely because of the actual content of them. and this is how it kind of develops in culture uh, it, in its own time and and you know leads to these various shifts. It also I think explains, mm-hmm. Uh, how explains exactly why there's so much nostalgia for these things, because they were literally taken away from these uh, men when they were children. Like these are literally their comic yeah. books that were taken away from them.
1: <laughs> and they only existed for a fairly short amount of time as, as like a fully consistent, you know, genre. Uh, and it's kind of weird to think about that. We, you know we live in an era where the most consistent, you know, the, the, the dominant genre of comic book has been superhero comics since the 1960s, but um, comics kind of went in shifts and waves for a very long time from the kind of birth of comics of commercial comics up through the, the comics code uh, being implemented. And, um, you know, so they they were a huge presence for, I don't know, less than 10 years as like a dominant form of the marketplace. Mm hmm kind of p- post war to the mid nineteen fifties when they're when they're banned, and so yeah, I think there's like a scarcity logic to it, and exactly what you're saying there's this nostalgia for a lost childhood that literally um congressionally <laughs> was taken away from people um and uh and it you know fed into the movie culture at the time too. this kind of moral logic of the comic book very much is um kind of a a, a holdover i think of storytelling methods within the Hayes code, mm-hmm. which was. You, you can have crime stories, but they need to be crime stories that work within very, very specific parameters. And th- those parameters uh, need to have a moral logic to the end, right? Crime doesn't pay. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. You know, Scarface dies in the gutter, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's all to say. Uh, it, it, it's an interesting kind of moment for these people. We
0: still got two stories to talk about. Uh, what do you think about this uh, getting buried in the sand story? Um, this, this story is unfortunate. I mean, the story itself is fine. I think... Generally speaking, apart from I think that this uh, printing is not great quality, I like Wrightson's art throughout, uh, but this is a, a prime example of what I mean where I feel like the the imagination um, that is either, you know, like creative imagination or what you were referring to earlier about the process with the baseball comic, the kind of uh, imagination of uh, like Exigency, like the like, I need to come up with some sort of fresh twist that's going to sell this book. That's not really here because it's our second zombie story. Like we're an, we're mm-hmm. in an anthology and we're already reusing a monster. Hmm. Yeah, Steve, you got
1: all the monsters in the world. These are sea zombies, though. I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Guy buries a couple in the same. His his. This is very similar, actually, to the l- the ledge. Yes. is that, that the name of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, rich guy has a wife wife cheats on him with some other dude that guy creates an elaborate scenario in which he kills them Um, you know rich guy being rich or tries to kill them in the case of the ledge in this case he does kill them both he buries them up to their neck in sand uh, lets the tide come over him really horrifying Mm -hmm. horrifying stuff there and then they turn into zombies and come kill him
0: yep the end
1: Uh, The end. Um, Yeah, formally, I don't think very much going on here. That's very special. This one feels ripped right out of the movie like this one feels uh, much closer to the film even than the other ones to me,
0: which is interesting because it's also the one that's like most abbreviated.
1: Well, it's kind of most abbreviated uh, right saying and maybe this is what King did in the original script in the movie. It's just put in chronological order. Mm-hmm. But this one has most of the same content. It's just way out of order. There's two full pages of flashback mm-hmm. to things that happened maybe 10 minutes before the beginning of the of the, the comic. Um... terrible, terrible storytelling (laughs) to my mind. (laughs) They did the right thing in the movie, I think.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because like those two pages of flashbacks are like narrated entirely by like the voice of the comic, which is sort of, you know, consistently implied to be like the voice of the creep himself or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you just get like all of this flashback and the creep narrating it to you, uh, which I think is an interesting comics device, uh, but definitely wouldn't have worked as well in the film. Um nothing
1: too special about it. He films it all. He's a real evil.
0: Yeah, that's dirt. the I mean that's where you can see kind of like the 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 imagination at work where it's like, okay, this guy's obsessed with like video equipment and recording things, and so of course he records these murders that he does, and then uh it I guess rebounds on him and that I'm pretty sure the zombies also set up a recording station. <laughs> They do. They, I don't think. Wait, hold on. Let me look here. Yeah, they do. They're doing the
1: film. Yeah, it's. Oh yeah, it's here. It's here. I see it. So someone. Uh, yeah, it's being recorded, and the creep is holding the camera at the very end, which I really like. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I uh, this this feels like a story that that begins. It feels like a, yet again an incomplete story in some ways because it, it, it it's written for a screenplay, so it's written for a movie. And it seems like the the moral here should be, hey, watching snuff films and watching people get murdered might be immoral. <laughs> like watching horror films might be, Ooh, what you doing there, bud? Mm-hmm. You know, it, that feels like the setup here. That's not the punchline. The punchline is, guess what? You bury people and you record them, you know, record their murders. You're going to have that happen to you, too. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Uh, it feels like there's maybe meant to be some audience culpability or maybe a little bit self critique going on here on the part of the audience that does not get followed through. on. Um, yeah, I, I, I have a lot to say about that one for the bonus episode,
0: but not a lot to say about the comic. I think the comic's pretty, yeah, whatever. uh, The final story, then the fifth one is they're creeping up on you. And as you said, this is the only one that really seems to like have the the moral logic down in the old school sense. It is about a a idiosyncratic, wealthy, elderly businessman named Upson Pratt, who is kind of, I think, Mm -hmm. intended to evoke a, a sort of like Howard Hughes when he got older and got really paranoid and like, you know, germaphobic famously. Uh, because he lives in this almost futuristic looking 1980s apartment with like a computer station where the computer is like built into the desk and and all of this stuff. There's like hermetics, hermetically sealed doors and so on and so forth. And he is upset because he has this big, expensive uh penthouse and cockroaches keep showing up and he wants to yell at people about this. Uh, Obviously the people who work in the building, he wants to get an exterminator, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Simultaneous to this, his company is negotiating some sort of hostile takeover of another company. And because of his tactics in this, he has uh, sort of caused like the, the CEO of the other company to, Uh, complete suicide, and the widow calls him and is like, I hope you burn in hell like you did this, you're responsible and he does not care at all because he is totally heartless Uh, and then the power goes out and all of the cockroaches come out of the walls and they kill him
1: Yep, they fill his body full of roaches and they explode out of him at the end Mm -hmm. It's rad Um, He's a racist Mm Mm-hmm Like King just gets that in there. There's like a whole thing with this. uh, And this is a very King thing, right? Uh There is a uh, there is a uh, like he's maybe the super. I don't
0: actually know what this dude. It's weird because like the the, I think it's like like a concierge. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think the super is like on vacation. And so he's dealing with like this guy who works under the super uh, who is a black man named white. Yeah. This is a very Stephen King, like extremely Stephen King and uh
1: the um this like rich guy like makes some racial remarks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um but what uh this is actually the the thing that made me think cuz there were a lot of resonances that happened across the thing. Uh the, the the rich guy in the previous story looks like Leslie Nielsen. He has white hair. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, you know, that, but Nielsen's particular kind of white hair. But what uh, really made me think, oh, yeah, Bernie Wrightson had to have seen some dailies or had to have seen some production shots or something, is that the apartment that is in They're Creeping Up On You is not what is in the screenplay, apparently. Oh. Um, yeah, they were not going to film this section. Uh, apparently, during production, Romero had to get the team together, like all the you know, the department leads, and be like, hey, we have run out of money should we do this final segment or would it be fine just to do the four and then be done? And they ultimately the, uh, like set designer was like, yeah, we can do it. We can do it cheaply. And so that's where this like white austere, whatever thing came from was production value. It was supposed to be kind of like a, um, uh, you know, like a decorative kind of, um, overwrought penthouse, Mm. you know, like, the, uh, uh, lavishly decorated kind of thing and so they went the other way to save money basically um which which I think works I think that actually probably works better than the other thing would have been and so Wrightson in the adaptation is 100% doing that which suggests to me oh yeah Wrightson saw pieces of this film maybe even a rough cut of the film while they were making it um the uh the ending is, is different too mm-hmm. uh which suggests to me maybe they didn't have the ending done um by it so he could adapt that or maybe the ending was just radically different in the comic um or in the screenplay because you know he goes into a hermetically sealed room in the film and here he just goes in his bedroom and there are a thousand cockroaches and, and then lights go off lights come back up and he's full of roaches so some uh, some real swerves here at the end and that might have also had to do with page count maybe uh,
0: but that's it. Like it just straight up ends. Yeah, it, it does. And like, that's it. That's the comic. And like the thing that holds it all together is the creep coming in at the beginning and at the ending of the story and saying like, well, wasn't that gruesome? Like time for the next one. Or wasn't that gruesome? See you next issue or what have you. And, yep. and that's it. Uh, as an adaptation. I mean, I think I, I might've already said this, but like, I think that Wrightson did a really great job in making this thing feel like a 1950s horror comic even if the stories are not quite operating in in the same ballpark or or with kind of the same the same tendency towards sheer weirdness that those could could go to like there's one that i've read that's about a uh a a cactus that falls in love with a woman and then like stalks her and like murders people Hmm. right uh People give Stephen King shit like, oh, this is the story about the haunted lamp. And it's like, oh, no, like we had we had evil mobile cactuses in in the 40s and 50s, folks. Like we we are just now getting back to to pre comics code levels of uh, weird horror bullshit. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> uh
0: uh, but yeah, I, I think Wrightson two things. What does a good job making these like the pacing, the panel composition, uh, the way that the creep will like comment on the action as narration, that all feels like just so spot on. Uh and then weirdly enough, I think Wrightson is pretty good at adapting Stephen King in the sense that uh, you know, in that interview, uh, Wrightson says that he uh He's he's read everything Stephen King has written, uh, and he has an ear for what is Kingy about Stephen King's writing. That was the thing that I found really kind of surprising. Is like there were moments in this comic where you can hear kind of like Stephen King's screenplay coming through, and you know that uh, Wrightson is like, oh, that's a good bit of like Kingy characterization or King dialogue, and I am going to keep that. So, uh, you know, I think that's an interesting. That that's one of the reasons why this is an interesting little object for me.
1: I mean they're fe- there I really want to know well I don't I I, I don't want to know, so please don't anyone inform me. But I'm curious in the abstract sense about whether all of the interior dialogue that shows up in this comic, you know, Thought Balloons, whether that's in Stephen King's screenplay or not. Because there's a fifty fifty <laughs> shot that it is. There's a fifty fifty shot that Stephen King was like, All right. Mm-hmm. Because we know in Cujo, right, he had all of these extraneous things that they had to, like, cut out of the screenplay mm-hmm. to, to make the film work. And so this is Stephen King working on, this has got to be one of his earliest screenplays, the the one for, for Creepshow. And I can imagine a world, especially having seen the Garris adaptations, where there's just people monologuing out loud in, in a scenario which, in any other format, that would just be internal dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um there, uh, I I wonder if Stephen King wrote in like people thinking <laughs> into his screenplay, and Wrightson has just accurately put that into the comic book as it is. And then when they were making the screenplay for the film and they were doing editing on set, they were like, "Steve, we can't. What are you doing?
0: We can't have someone say play some damn bebop. That makes no sense." <laughs> uh yeah no i i have it, the same question i mean because that there's a bit in the interview again where writes and he may just be, you know it may just be hyperbole to you know get the point across of what this job was like for him but he indicates that the screenplay was five inches thick which is a thick screenplay yeah uh and but i can see stephen king turning in 200 pages yes exactly right i can and i think <laughs> uh you know I don't know in terms of, like, which, like, what is literally the first attempt that Stephen King ever made at screenwriting. I don't know what that is. Uh, I think that's hard to pin down unless the man himself happens to remember and tells us. Uh, But I know this is uh, or was presented as his screenwriting debut. Hmm. So, uh, you know, this this is his first actual, like, screenplay credit, I'm pretty sure.
1: Well, yeah, this is got to, because this has got to be nineteen eighty. It's got to be nineteen. Well, when? Okay, actually, I bet I can figure this out based on what I've learned. Okay, uh, in the commentaries, *John of the Dead* is seventy eight. So I bet that Stephen King, uh, I I I I feel reasonably certain that Stephen King talked to Romero and pitched this in seventy nine. That would be my assumption, mm-hmm. Um, and if that's the case, then Stephen King would have been writing this in 1980, and yeah, that's got to be before anything else, mm-hmm. any other screenplay that he wrote. So, so yeah, this, this is probably the first one that he worked on. I would assume.
0: Yeah, interesting. And if that's the case, if this was just like a massive, massive screenplay, it is more to my point, which is that Wrightson. Uh, It almost feels like it just feels a little bit like genius to me of being able to look at all of this King writing and to be able to cut it down so economically that it one still feels like Stephen King, but two also feels like the thing that Stephen King is trying to evoke these comics. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I, I think it was just a, a really sort of. I I think it's a really special thing for that reason. And I think it's it it makes me glad that we covered it for this show, because I get to say that, like, you know, it's it's a king thing. And uh, some of these king Mm -hmm. things are uh, if you've listened to the bonus episodes, uh, one of the things that is very interesting that comes up there again and again and again uh, is how often the people who are working on Stephen King films are Stephen King fans. And yeah. here we see this happening with Wrightson who, you know, wants to do right by this Stephen King project. And so this is like a, a sort of, it's a form of Stephen King that uh, otherwise we might not have covered in this show. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And that other people don't mm-hmm. because they, they it, it, uh, it doesn't count, quote unquote, for the, the kind of official cemetery dance group, mm-hmm. um, you know, official in quotation marks there. But that's as close, I think, to the official second-hander kind of, you know, you know uh, structure mm-hmm. uh, as anyone else's. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not mad that I read it. I probably wish I'd read the comic before I saw the movie. Um, mm-hmm.
0: But, you know, that's how it goes. yeah um, So, I mean, you, you want to do a couple segments? Yeah, let's do some segments. What you got? Okay. Uh, so we have My Favorite Kingism, uh, which is a, a little... Uh, tendentious at this point because as I've explained, you know, there's this is not really direct uh, access to the Stephen King prose style, uh, Mm. but you know there are kingisms that kind of bubble forth to the surface of this uh my favorite kingism is the segment where we talk about like a piece of writing in whatever we've just read that we think uh is indicative or or typical or representative of Stephen King and his style uh in a way that we like or sometimes in a way that we don't like but that is just you know this is a thing that this is a thing that Stephen King wrote and for me weirdly enough uh it, it's a thing that does not really technically show up in this book because this book censors mm-hmm. the curse words because it is made for children. Uh, so mm-hmm. my favorite Kingism is from The the Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, where, as if you've seen the film, you will know that Jordy Verrill consistently refers to like the slime that comes out of the meteor that he found as meteor shit, Uh, which is just, yeah, like that feels just like a thing that Stephen King would write. Like, the, the person finds the thing, it has uh, ooze, and the ooze is meteor shit. But here it is rendered as meteor, a bunch of, like, you know, pound signs and exclamation points and an at sign and stuff to, to like, censor out the curse wait. word. Wait, what, really? Oh, wait, no, 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 that's not what he does. They call it meteor crap isn't it
1: yeah they do oh i was about to be like holy shit we have read different versions of this book it was <laughs> blowing my mind
0: i was confused because there are other places where people use like higher yep. level curse words and they get censored out in that like traditional way but yeah no they just turn it into meteor crap yep which is honestly also pretty kingy <laughs> yes yeah
1: it is oh you know what here's something we didn't talk about i i to and i didn't bring it up the uh just going back really briefly to the crate mm-hmm. uh it, it's really wild the way that he lures his wife there oh which yeah. is by saying which is by saying that his work friend has sexually assaulted a graduate student and perhaps murdered her and he's helping him cover it up mm-hmm. what a baroque way of getting there right like what what <laughs> And It is implied in the film, not so much in the in the comic, but it is implied that th- his friend does have like predatory relationships with grad students. Mm-hmm. There's one shot that's deeply uncomfortable at that party, um, to the point where it, like it it was unclear what was actually happening there. And uh, both my extremely brave wife and I uh, were like, "What is that? What is happening?" And then only later you're like, "Oh, this is was there to give the implication that there was maybe some truth to this uh, other story." But just wanted to note that that is a truly wild and weird thing to build into this story that truly has no purpose. <laughs> it could have been anything. It could have been he discovered a meteor. You yeah. need to come check it out. Yeah. I need a ride. It could be anything.
0: Yeah, it's just Uh, another it's another great example of just like how fucked the moral calculus uh, that that (laughs) is admitted to be in these stories. Uh, Like that's the thing is that Stephen King is like these stories are like totally moralist, but then never makes any sort of hard claims as to like what he's doing with that. It just sort of, you know, this kind of implication that he's trying to maybe reproduce it. And then this is what we end up with.
1: Yeah, and uh, his uh, best buddy, who's predatory to graduate students, at the end is like, can't wait to play chess two times a week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now your wife's dead. Uh, uh, but anyway, my favorite kingism is uh, his fascination with uh, murderous men and their cheating wives. Mm-hmm. It's not even going to be the last time we see this. I don't think. No, it's coming. <laughs> it's
0: coming up in the very next book.
1: Yeah, I. What, <laughs> Steve? What are you doing? Um, but you know what? Here's the thing. Stephen King at this point, 1982, he's a very rich man. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. I don't know what that means. Uh, but that's my favorite Kingism. I am i don't know. I'm just saying that Stephen King has in his over his career very quickly has moved from being, um, Joe, Everyman to being the rich guy. Mm hmm. And this is yet another moment of where Stephen King's like, I am the common man perspective begins to look really, really weird and out of place. When you begin to think about that in relationship to his stories and the way it informs the stories versus his actual material conditions in the world in which he is not the everyman anymore. Mm -hmm. He is part of a very small sliver of human beings and that he becomes part of a smaller percent, almost to the point where he might become. 1% Mm. Uh, you know pretty quickly here so I don't know it's it's interesting it's worth thinking about and it's something I'm trying to keep in mind especially as we go through the 80s that the Stephen King's perception of himself versus Stephen King's perception by the rest of the world is perhaps different Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really bizarre to hear like George Romero be like Stephen King writes from the perspective of the common man when Stephen King has written himself out of being a common man in the 1970s. The dude's getting millions of dollars, uh, per, per book at this point.
0: Yeah. Uh, so just if we're thinking about the common man here, first story, it's about rich people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get killed. Uh, second story, it's about a country bumpkin. Uh, and frankly, it's, it's kind of, uh, it, it's not like approving of his lifestyle. Like Jordy Verrill is not the salt of the earth. He's a, a figure of scorn and ridicule. He dies. Mm-hmm. uh third story it's about uh it's about the intrigues of some college professors
1: mm-hmm. fourth story which stephen king has just been <laughs> yeah. stephen king is working as a college professor when he yes it's got to be when he's writing Oh my this, god yes
0: right? oh of course or
1: right beforehand i don't know when the crate is published but you know he's he's paying attention
0: mm-hmm. uh Fourth story is about like you know people who are wealthy enough that like the, the 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 guy who's having an affair, I think he's like a you know it's it's like the the ledge. He's like a tennis instructor or something. Um, yeah. the The cuckolded character is like wealthy enough that he has all of these all of this camera equipment around his house. And then uh, the last story is literally about Howard Hughes. And <laughs> yeah, it's just about varieties of rich people. Yeah. And and sure like most of those people are presented as, you know, in some way not good and they end up dying, uh but there is kind of this interesting sort of focus on people who are already comfortable. Uh like the really the mm-hmm. one person who isn't is is Jordy and he's just a total clown. <laughs> mhm. Yeah, there's something going
1: on here. And I think Stephen King, we've talked about this already. Stephen King seems to, his awareness of his wealth seems to almost entirely process through guilt and uh, what does that make of me? Mm -hmm. He's not reflective in the way that I think I would want him to be reflective of that, which is that, how does that change the the perspective from which I'm writing? But it does seem to change his content and like the things that he is interested in writing about. Um, And... You know, to the point where eventually at the end of the 1980s, he's going to be writing a movie or I mean, I guess he does. It's a movie as well, but he's writing a book that is about an author who is internationally famous Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, has to deal with the questions of like celebrity and all that kind of stuff right so he's he's reflective in some ways but not maybe um in ways in in others mm-hmm. maybe is the best way of putting that but uh our, our other segment here our next segment here is what in the king which is uh identifying things that are showing up across king's broad universe that's connected and kind of uh, doing all kinds of stuff. Um, what, what'd you come up with here, Michael? Uh,
0: I mean, the, the big one is that Jordy Verrill lives outside of Castle Rock, which is King's kind of recurring town that showed up first in the Dead Zone, showed up most recently for us in Cujo, and is going to show up a couple more times uh, over the coming decades.
1: Um, the uh, The other one here
0: is Horlicks University. Did you notice this one? I did not. Uh, although you wrote it here in the notes and I'm like, damn, I missed that. And now I'm thinking like, no, that is familiar. Where did that come from, Cameron? So that is the university that the students go to in
1: the raft. Oh, yeah, they are. They are uh, from Horlicks University and I pulled it. I didn't notice it either. I, I would never have. have uh, I think it's pretty clear at this point that I'm not the person who's picking up on these the most. Um but uh, it also is a university that shows up in Christine, mm, apparently. Okay. Uh, someone brings this up in the... Co- uh, Michael Gornick brings brings this up in the commentary. And uh, Christine is set in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote it while he was in Pittsburgh, or was writing it while he was in Pittsburgh working on this film. And so the... Uh, and it is... It is uh, Horlick's university and Stephen King's universe is in Pittsburgh. Um, that's where it is. And so... Uh, the implication, I looked it up online because I actually didn't know how to spell it. I spelled it like some Harry Potter shit, H-O-R-L-I-X. <laughs> and so I had to look it up before I put it into the the uh, thing here. Uh, but, but I think it actually shows up. Um, it's it's in the comic because it says at Horlicks University. But for the most part, they're talking about the, the hall that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, which is Amberson um, Hall. Yeah, Amberson Hall, which in the movie is used in such a way that you might think the college is called Amberson Hall. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but no, it's at at Horlicks university. And I, so I saw some like fan forum me kind of stuff. And it seems like there's, there, there was kind of a fan thought at one point that this would be kind of King's, um, Arkham Mm. university. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of never turned out that way. Um, Stephen King couldn't. Uh, maybe it was too far of a trek for characters to make their way to Pittsburgh (laughs) regularly. So it seems like he dropped it, but it was, it was, uh, used a few
0: times in the 1980s, um, for, for Stephen King kind of shared, shared work. Okay. Um, and that's kind of the end of our segments. There's no uncle Stevie's mixtape this time because there's not really any uh, music mentioned in this comic book that I saw.
1: Nope. Yeah. Nope. There's a lot of chatter if you're interested in, um, in in learning about the music for this movie. A lot of discussion about that because the director of photography was also the director of production and as director of production he chose the like rough cut library tracks that, that they would use for Laurel movies for these Romero films. And so um, he talks a lot about the musical choices. Apparently there's a quote unquote fan favorite song in this movie called Don't Let Go. Um. Okay. Yep. Big question mark. I, I don't. But you know, in case you're a, a person who cares about that kind of thing, if there's one, that's all that is to say, if there's one piece of music that is associated with Creep Show on the whole by the fan community, it is apparently a song called "Don't Let Go." <laughs> that I do not know what it is, and I've watched the movie now three times, and I cannot tell you what it would be. So,
0: big question mark. So, uh, it's, it's time to close up shop here. Uh, we are range touch. If you want to know more about what we do, you can find out, uh, everything we do as we do it on Twitter, uh, at range touch. We also have youtube.com slash range touch where we have videos, uh, go through other, uh, series like mages and murder dads where C- Cameron and Danny are playing through the games in the Baldur's Gate lineage. And, uh, Cameron and I are playing, uh, through the fallout games for too much future, uh, in terms of, other just straight-up podcasts. Uh, This is our first time recording after... uh, Yeah, this is our first time recording after starting the Homestuck show, which happened because of people like you, uh, giving us their support at patreon.com slash range touch. We had a goal, uh, to reach $4,500 a month, at which point we would start in on a, a big long form Homestuck discussion show where we're going to read through that webcomic, And I'm going to, you know, be doing my research into kind of like Homestuck as it happened and, uh, helping that, uh, you know, sort of inform our analysis of the comic that is happening. Now Uh, it's happened because people like you have decided to support us and we would love more support. Literally anything helps. And it just goes to making uh, our production schedule better. It it, it justifies us, uh, you know, spending our time on this. It helps us get new equipment. It helps me, uh, you know, buy special forum uh archives so I can read what people were talking about in the early two thousands or the, rather the late two thousands with just the cost of a cup of coffee a month. You can help us uh continue to do more range touch work and better range touch work. Help us keep the lights on. It is much appreciated. Another thing you can do to help us out uh if that's not really something in your cards is you can go to uh Apple Podcasts or any other podcast forum or. Uh, uh, you know platform where you operate and talk us up. Give us a review. Give us a five star review. Tell people how much you like this show and you can also tell a friend. You don't have to do this online. You could tell a friend in real life to go listen to some range touch stuff. Come listen to just King things. Uh, oh, we have a store now. Damn, that's the other thing too. I know. Oh, there are so many ways you can Whoa. help us out. Uh, what is the URL for that store? Can I even say it? Is it something uh, that no, I can you read? Can.
1: Uh No, you can go to com slash store and it will take you right there. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, wait,
0: so wait, you... wait. It's com slash shop. Oh god. Okay. com slash shop to check out those t-shirts to, to see that print. Uh and maybe order yourself or uh, uh someone else in your life who loves range touch uh things something special. Those are all ways you can help us. Uh but also on the Patreon, at the $5 level, you will get the Just King Things bonus episodes where Cameron and I talk about a Stephen King film that is sometimes connected to the thing that we just read and, and sometimes not at all connected. It sort of depends on what we can pull together. Obviously, this month we are talking about the film version of Creepshow over on uh, the bonusode feed, so you can check that out, and um, it's, you know, it's... Another episode for every episode of this show that we have done. So you are essentially doubling your content uh, if you if you go that route. I think it'll be a good time. Um, And occasionally we Mm -hmm. have special guests. And I will say that next month's bonus episode, if everything goes according to plan, we will be discussing uh, the film Stand By Me. Uh, a famous Stephen King film, even though I think many people don't necessarily realize that it's a Stephen King film, uh, and we will have a very special guest whose name I will announce uh, closer to time, but uh, it, next month is going to be a, a you know special guest episode, so I'm really looking forward to that, and then on the mainline mm. episode, Cameron, uh, we will be discussing... The thing that Stand By Me comes from, uh, the novella The Body, which is part of Stephen King's first novella collection, Different Seasons.
1: There's nothing more spine tingling than the phrase, Stephen King's first novella collection. <laughs> <laughs> Uh I actually really like uh Different Seasons. It's been a long time since I've read it, but uh uh Different Seasons has some some if you don't know about Different Seasons, and I think it's possible that people don't, Different Seasons has the both the novella that the Shawshank Redemption is based mm-hmm. on, and the novella that S- Stand By Me is based mm-hmm. on. Um which is shocking that those are both in the same book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two other ones yes. that people don't talk about as much yeah. <laughs> for uh, Wait, a- apt people is in yep. there. There's also a film adaptation, a fairly, I would say notorious film, certainly at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then a, th- a fourth thing that literally no one talks yeah. about that, but we will talk about on the show. Um, but it is, uh, I would say as far as like things that have permeated into the consciousness from Stephen King, Different seasons is hugely, hugely important and and uh, not really horror mm-hmm. in, in any, not supernatural, certainly, in the way that we associate with King so far. So I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion about it. Um, it might be a little bit of a longer episode just because of what's going on with it. Um, I will say I was just looking at the star ratings on Apple Podcasts, and I know that Michael's already asked you, hey, go give us a five-star rating. And this is uh, why I want you to do that. I'm asking you personally. It's me. It's me. It's your good old friend. Because someone wrote. Here, here's an example of a good one. A great five star rating. Uh, from the Salmon's Kid. True story. <laughs> this made me want to read a book. Okay, look. That's it. Like that. Boom. That's five. Wait, stars. The name you was the Salmon's Kid. Oh, we know who that is. I'm, 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 uh, I'm throwing that forward because I know who that is. This is a Discord user. Oh, okay. Uh, of, of ours but here but this is uh, this is this is what's happening uh someone gave us a three star rating
0: <laughs> uh, uh,
1: uh. why <laughs> and then i wrote this i'm not going to say their name but they wrote this not objective <laughs> Makes some good points but this is mostly just two people who don't like king novels highlighting his flaws. Majority of the time is spent on snarky hot takes you've heard before. (laughs) I'm responding to this in real time on the thing. Number one. Sometimes we have a guest, so we're three people. Number two. I do like Stephen King novels, and I've spent so much time saying that on the show. Number three. The majority of the time is definitely not spent on snarky hot takes. I've never been snarky in my life. Number four. I agree. We do often make some good points. <laughs> Boom. There you have it. Take that reviewer. Take that reviewer. <laughs> if you disagree with that three-star review, get on there. Give us five stars. Help us out. Because we're now down to a 4.9. We were at a five. But one three-star review took us down to a 4.9. So I need everyone. I'm, I'm summoning up. Spirit Bomb Energy. Stephen King Spirit Bomb. That's yeah. the next shirt. <laughs> uh <laughs> I, it, it did also, while you were talking about the uh, shirts, it made me think about doing a shirt that just says, I'm doing it for Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Not the command, but uh, just a statement about where you are in the yeah. world. But Anyway, we got some cool stuff going on. You can see, uh, I've just found out too, by the way, that like all of the links and things like that in the episode descriptions haven't really been working the way that we thought they were in uh Shout out to us for not knowing that, but uh, I'm going to get those fixed, and so uh we'll be able to do that. But if you check the description below, you'll find links to all the cool stuff that we've been talking about and doing,
0: and uh I think you'll have a good time checking it all out, yeah, yeah, so you know thanks for thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to me, the person who hates Stephen King so much that he read everything the man wrote up until like two thousand and eight and now is doing it again out of out of pure hatred, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why I'm uh, doing this show. <laughs> pure hatred. <laughs> but I think I think other people are doing it for a different reason. Why is that? Oh, cuz we're doing it for Steve.